0: front load our sermon this morning because we want to be encountered with the truth at the very beginning and then we're going to have an extended time that we respond in musical worship following this. How many of you are grateful for the resurrection of Christ? That he lives. He lives today. There's no doubt. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28 and uh, I will ask you to stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 for our text. If Today is your first Sunday with us. We've been walking through Matthew 26, 27, and 28 uh, over the past several weeks. And, of course, we studied Matthew 27 and particularly the crucifixion and our Good Friday service so that we could contemplate the majority of time on the resurrection of Christ, though we will spend just a few moments in the beginning considering, once again, Christ's crucifixion. Beginning in Matthew 28, verse 1, this is what the Scripture records. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. (laughs) I love that. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, it's interesting he doesn't say it to the guards, right? But to the women, he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the privilege to study it this morning. We pray that as we encounter truth from the very beginning of this service, that your spirit would light it up to us. Father, we pray for those who, this may be the first time they hear of Christ's crucifixion, his substitution for our sin. Father, we are grateful that Jesus is risen. According to your great power, you have raised him from the dead, and it is your great power that still works within us. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to obey the words of our great king here, to go and make disciples. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. May it be evident that it's changed everything in our lives. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I want to give you six truths this morning about Jesus from this text. Six truths that we will walk through fairly quickly. Truth number one is the only past tense truth in the text. And truth number one is that Jesus was crucified. After the angel comes down, he rolls the stone away and he sits on it. Uh, He addresses the women, tells them not to be afraid. And he says in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So as we think about six truths this morning about Jesus, the very first one that we want to ponder is Jesus was crucified. How is it that Jesus ended up in the tomb to begin with? And we spent Good Friday, this past Friday, two days ago, uh, plenty of time uh, meditating on and thinking through the cross. But I want to give you a couple uh, aspects of that this morning just for sake of review. And I've put them there in your notes. As you think about the crucifixion of Jesus, first of all, his crucifixion was public. What Jesus did was not hidden. It wasn't away so that only a few people saw it. It was very public. And as much as the disciples talked about it, no one refuted after that that Jesus was crucified. Everyone was on the same page that there was a man named Jesus and he was crucified outside of Jerusalem. No one was debating that. There were crowds of people who saw the crucifixion happen in an open public place. All the religious and secular leaders were involved, and secular historians of the earliest centuries treated the death of Jesus as a historical fact. Tacitus, the Roman historian who was born in A.D. 55, so if the crucifixion took place either in 30 or 33, this guy was born anywhere from 25 to 22 years later, and he was a Roman historian, he did not follow Christ, but he explained that Christians were these, Christ, whom they took from whom they took their name, had been put to death as a punishment during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And so he's saying that uh, there was Jesus who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and then what began to be told, not only in Judea, but even in Rome, Christ was risen. Christ was risen. We see that Christ's crucifixion was public. I want you to be reminded of that, that even secular folks will point to this. His crucifixion was painful. And uh, we spent some time on this Friday, but a short summary is this. The suffering of death by crucifixion was intense, especially in hot climates. The swelling about the rough nails and the torn, lacerated tendons and nerves caused excruciating agony. The arteries of the head and stomach were surcharged with blood and a terrific throbbing headache ensued. The mind was confused and filled with anxiety and dread foreboding. The victim of crucifixion literally died a thousand deaths. So without a doubt, crucifixion was a horrendous way to die. And this is the way that Jesus publicly died. He was, his crucifixion was public. His crucifixion was painful. A third aspect, his crucifixion was planned. We've tried to say over and over and over, this was no accident. Jesus was not caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. His crucifixion was planned. Jesus told his disciples multiple times this was going to happen, As uh, we've read before in Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. In Acts 4, when the apostles are praying, I've said it often to you, they said this, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So the death of Jesus is not a historical fluke or an accident or merely the effect of great injustice. It was a plan by God. It was God's plan. And the New Testament clearly tells us God so loved the world that he gave his son. Friends, Romans eight thirty-two. God who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. Jesus was crucified by design, not accident. So Jesus' crucifixion was public, painful, planned. And here's the last one. It was punishment for our sin. Jesus didn't die for his sin, he died for our sin. Galatians one four says, Christ gave himself for our sins according to the will of our God and Father. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And of course, as Isaiah says, 700 years before Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have spent ample time, particularly over the past two years and particularly over the past several weeks, talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Jesus is not dying his death, friends. He's dying our death. Jesus had done nothing to disobey God. We have done plenty. And God in his eternal plan says, I will exchange I will put your sin on my son, and I will give my son's righteousness to you, the sinner. This is a glorious, glorious truth and a glorious fact. Jesus was crucified, but, dear friends, Jesus didn't stay dead. The grave may have put its clutches on Jesus, but it was not strong enough to hold him. Truth number two is that Jesus is alive. We find in Matthew 28, our scripture that we've already read to you, that after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, the women are returning, and they have spices that they want to take to properly uh, anoint his body for burial. Mary Magdalene the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said.'" Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. The good news is, as much as Jesus foretold his crucifixion and death, he also foretold that he would rise from the grave. And there is no other religious leader who has ever risen from the dead. Mohammed is still dead today, friends. Confucius is still dead today. Jesus is alive to die never again. Jesus is the only one who's done this. When I was a senior in high school, uh, was, uh, our home church was First Baptist Leesville, and, and I got the Easter Sunday morning solo. Can you believe that? And, uh, and in there is a song, Why Do You Seek the Living Among the Dead? Christ the Messiah is risen, just as he said. You'll notice I'm telling it, and I'm not singing it this morning. Go tell the world all that you've seen today, the tomb that is empty, the stone rolled away. Why do you seek the living among the dead? But, you know, there are some people who really don't believe this. And some of you may be in this room today. You don't believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. There are other theories. I've listed them there in your uh, handout. Not only was Jesus crucified, Jesus is alive, but not everyone believes that. Some believe in the swoon theory. And the swoon theory proposes that Jesus did not die, but went into a coma or what's called a swoon. And from the severe pain and trauma and loss of blood, but as he was laid in the cool tomb, he would be revived. Now, the problem with that holding true is if Jesus is going to actually not have died on the cross but just have passed out, he's still going to have to survive massive loss of blood from being on the cross. He's going to have to survive the scourging, the nail wounds, and the spear thrust. He would have then had to endure more than 40 hours without food or drink. He would have to manage to unwrap himself, single-handedly roll the stone away from the inside of the tomb, but as we saw Friday night... the stone was sealed, he's going to have to somehow from the inside roll that away and walk out unchallenged by the guards, then convince his followers he'd actually been dead and miraculously raised. The swoon theory takes a lot of faith, friends. It does. Swoon theory isn't the only one. The no burial theory. What this proposes is that Jesus was never placed in the tomb, but in a mass grave for criminals. Uh, Well, If that is true, then let's look back in the text, in in Matthew 27, verse 62. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he'd risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I'm pretty sure they're convinced the body of Jesus is in that tomb. If there was no burial, I'm pretty sure they would not have guarded this tomb specifically for this reason. Plus, with the resources that the priests are going to have, as well as the resources of Rome, if he was in a mass grave, he could have been dug up and found and presented. So... Uh, no one ever retrieved his body to disprove the theory. Another theory is the hallucination theory, and this is one of my favorite ones. It proposes that everyone who claimed to have seen the risen Jesus simply experienced a hallucination induced by an ardent expectation of his resurrection. And I would say, first of all, one of the things that's wrong with this is uh, even his closest disciples were not ardently expecting his resurrection. Second of all, I find it amazing that Uh, The passage that Kevin read from will tell you that at one point, Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time after his resurrection. I find it interesting that 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time in the same way. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I would submit to you that all of these other theories take incredible faith. There's the telepathy theory. And this proposes that there's no physical resurrection, but that God sent divine telepathic messages to Christians that caused them to believe Jesus was alive. I guess Thomas, his got junked up on the way down because Thomas didn't believe it, right? Uh, Also, uh, my biggest problem with this is it makes God, who is the author of truth, to be a deceiver. It makes God out to be a deceiver. And, uh, of course, as they're on the road to Emmaus, those that were with him didn't recognize Jesus immediately. So if it is telepathy, there's some distortions a a long way from heaven to earth. Something interrupted the waves a little bit. Another interesting one is the seance theory. And I love that someone proposes that Jesus was conjured up by someone from the occult. Of course. That makes perfect sense. the only problem is uh, they held onto his feet. They put a hand on his wounded side. He ate a meal with them. And the last time I checked, Casper, the friendly ghost, doesn't do any of those things. So to say that Jesus was just a ghost or he was just an apparition, the problem is in this passage, when the women see them, they grab his feet. They grab his feet the most popular one, and it's the one that Matthew is dealing with, is that someone stole his body, that the disciples stole his body. And this is why Matthew deals with it. Apparently, it was still going on. As we read in the text, he says, this is still told to this day. And you'll see, I love Pilate. Pilate, remember Pilate? He said, I washed my hands of that. Do you remember when Pilate said that? But I love after the crucifixion, Pilate isn't left alone. The first one that comes is Joseph of Arimathea, and he begs that he might have Jesus' body. And I'm sure Pilate thought he was done with all of these things. It says that Pilate was actually surprised that Jesus was already dead because some of these crucifixions could drag on for hours. Mark writes and says that Pilate was actually surprised that he was already dead. Joseph comes and he begs, Pilate says, yes, you can have the body. And then Pilate goes on about his day. And then here come the Jewish leaders again. And they're bothering him saying, hey, here's what he said. This imposter said that uh, he would come back. What we want, and they don't say that Jesus is going to rise. They just say, we're worried the disciples will steal his body. I love that Pilate gets no rest after he washes his hands of it. He's continued to be bothered by this. I think it's partly on purpose. But they come and they want a detachment of soldiers. So... What happens, though, is there is a real resurrection. Jesus really rises from the grave. The angel comes down. There's the earthquake. The angel's sitting on top of the stone. The guards who see the angel pass out from fear, which I feel that most of us would do, which also means that I don't think the angels look like the chubby, fat little cherubims that we sometimes see in the cartoons. Because if they would, who's going to fall out at that? You know, he'd be like, want a donut, dude? You know, no one's going to be afraid of this. I think angels look much more magnificent than we can grasp. And so these Roman soldiers fall out in fear. And so they see the exchange that the angel has with these women. And the women are going to go. Well, what happens is the women go to tell the disciples. The soldiers then go to tell the chief priest. And that picks up in verse 11. And it says, while they were going, talking about the women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night. And stole him away while we were asleep. Who makes up the lie about the stolen body? It's the religious crowd. It's the ones who have the most to protect and the most money to spend. And they are the ones who created this lie. And that's why Matthew is writing. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And as Matthew writes, he says, You want to know who came up with this lie? It wasn't the disciples. It was the religious leadership that comes up with this lie and paid the soldiers to keep it quiet. They say in verse 14, If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. There are some problems that I don't think the Sanhedrin thought through when they made up this lie. The first problem is to suggest that the disciples stole the body was to show complete ignorance of these men's state of mind at the time. Do you remember when Jesus appears to the disciples? Where are they meeting? They're meeting in a room behind what? Locked doors. I don't think the disciples were going out anywhere at night. I think after Peter denies Christ, we see he goes out and weeps bitterly. To think that the disciples all of a sudden got together and said, hey, let's steal the body. They do not have a clear grasp on what Jesus' disciples were really thinking. And if you'll notice, it wasn't the disciples that were at the tomb. It was the women. It was the women who were there. And, men. We should, we should heed a lot of this. The women are faithful at the crucifixion. The women are at the burial. The women are at the very beginning of the resurrection story. And this is another reason why you can know that there's some truth in this because women's testimony counted for squat in their day. And so the first ones that would testify, if they were trying to fabricate the story, they would not have made up that women were the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. But it's just one other point that points to the accuracy and the reality of this story in God's divine plan. It was the women who'd been so faithful, they were the first to see it. Another one is, it's really interesting that uh, Roman soldiers would all fall asleep long enough for the disciples to have moved the stone, stolen the body, and not wake up at any point when the seal's being broken on that big old rock. It's really amazing. And what's even more amazing is Roman soldiers knew you don't fall asleep. For instance, there was one who was charged to guard these bodies that were on the crosses. And Romans typically didn't bring the bodies down from the cross. They let them decompose on the cross as a further sign of what rebellion costs you. The Jews, however, didn't like that. And, of course, they let them take Jesus's body down from the cross, but one Roman soldier had been charged to watch some of these bodies that were still on the cross. Apparently, one came up missing, and it was such a trauma for him, that soldier took his own life. So to think that all of these soldiers would fall asleep on duty, knowing that ultimately it could cost their own life, It takes a lot of faith to believe that all of these men decided they would take a snooze at the same time. And then the disciples, what you didn't know, the word for disciple also means ninja because it means that they operate in stealth and silence and can do some Chuck Norris moves and never awaken these soldiers, right? But here's my favorite one. If the soldiers were asleep, how do they know who stole the body? How did they know? The disciples left a note. Ha-ha, suckers, right? <laughs> Signed, ichthus. Disciples, right? Is that, is that how they knew? Uh, you know, it, it's really just amazing when you think about it. They said, well, the disciples stole while we were all asleep. And we know it was them, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, I, th- I hope that we will hear what Matthew is saying here. The ones who invented the lie were not the disciples, trying to continue the legend of Jesus. It was the religious crowd trying to hide the truth. The real deceiver was not Jesus. The real imposter was not Jesus. If you rise three days after you say you did, that's not a lie. That's straight truth, friends. Jesus is alive. And the passage that Kevin read, if you hold your place and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, it points to the reality of the resurrection. Paul spends a whole chapter... One of the most lengthy treatments on the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. And two simple points in the opening verses are that the death and resurrection of Christ were foretold. they were also witnessed. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The death and resurrection of Christ were both foretold. They were also also though both witness look at what it says in verse 5 He appeared to Cephas then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And what he writes, and he says, look, he appeared to 500 people. Some of them are still alive. If we're lying, let them refute it. If we're lying and Jesus didn't really rise, and if Thomas didn't really touch him, then let people refute that. But what we want you to see from the scripture is that Jesus is alive, which means this. Christ's death and resurrection are historical facts with eternal consequences. Whether you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ matters significantly and eternally. The question that I often think of, how? How does Jesus rise from the dead? How is this possible? I've never seen anyone rise from the dead, but Peter and Paul both have the answer to how Jesus rises from the dead. Peter says in Acts 20, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Paul writes in Ephesians 1, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, he tells you very simply, how is it that Christ was raised? The power of God. Friends, at this we should tremble. And then we should even be further blown away because Paul will write after that to say, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his great power that's at work within us. Friends, the power that raised Christ from the dead is also the power that's at work in the church. Why in the world does the church so often look so powerless? Why does it look so weak? For instance, some truths about Jesus. Jesus was crucified, but Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Truth number three that we learn from our passage in Matthew 28 is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is extremely important. Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them, the women, and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. You're going to find when he appears to the disciples and he's on the mount getting ready to uh, ascend. It says in 17, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You see twice that Jesus is worshipped. The women took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then some of his followers, they worship him. Why is this important? It's important because how many of you remember Jesus' temptation? You remember Jesus being tempted? Who was it that tempted Jesus? It was Satan, and where did he tempt him? In the wilderness, right? And in the last temptation, uh, Satan says, If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Of course, Satan didn't have the power to give any of those things, but he says he did. And he says, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus himself quotes, and he says, You shall worship only God. Don't worship anyone else but God. What do we see in the resurrection of Christ twice in this same passage? What do they do to Jesus? They worship Jesus. What can we know about that, friends? Very clearly what we can know. Jesus is God. Jesus is not just another man. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the essence of God himself. Now, I can't uh, go into the lengthy treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity. I leave that to Miss Charlotte Stevens and our children's teachers because they've been wrestling through that lately. But I can clearly see from this that Jesus is being worshipped because Jesus is God. In Revelation 5, Jesus is going to stand in the center of heaven and the elders and the creatures are there and the angels are are all going to bow down and worship Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. And that's why later in Matthew 28, in the commissioning, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here we have God in three persons, the Trinity. And so it's important that you grasp it is proper and right for us to worship Jesus. Sunday after Sunday. Matter of fact, every worship service should be an exaltation of Christ because Jesus is God. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He is God himself. Truth number three, Jesus is God. Truth number four, and I'm most grateful uh, for this, Jesus is merciful. Jesus is merciful. So the women have been told to go back, and they're running back with fear and great joy. And I imagine what that was like, what they were feeling as they stepped into that tomb and saw that Jesus was gone. They see the soldiers laid out. They see this glorious angel. And Luke says there were actually two angels that were there. And I imagine their hearts were pumping and as they're running, and then all of a sudden Jesus just shows up and he's like, what's up? That's the technical word behind greetings. He says, what's up? And they see him. They take hold of his feet. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Do not be afraid. That's twice they've been told that. That should give us an indication. Plus, when you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, when we see Jesus in his glory, friends, when we see Jesus in his glory, uh, Peter and James and John got a sneak peek, and they fell down on the mountain, right? And Peter's like, let's build a Motel 6, leave the light on, let's stay up here forever, Peter was always trying to get in the way of the plan of redemption. How many of you are grateful Peter didn't succeed in any of his efforts to stop it? Bless his heart. So he's there. Bless his heart It means everything it means in the Hebrew. So he, he doesn't stop it, you know. But when they see him, they fall down dead. When Paul in Acts 9 is on his way to Damascus, the risen Christ appears. Paul is blinded by this incredible glory of Christ. When John encounters the risen Christ in Revelation John worships this glorious picture here. So here, the women have to be told again, don't be afraid. But then look at this word. This is so beautiful. You see it? Go tell my what? What's the word there? Brothers. To go to like Galilee. You think he meant just uh, the other siblings that Mary and Joseph had? You think that's who he was talking about? Who is Jesus talking about when he says brothers here, church? Who's he talking about? The disciples. But not just the disciples, friends. The betrayers, these were the ones that all sold him out. They all sold him out. They all forsook him. They all abandoned him. And Jesus says, tell my brothers, I'll meet them in Galilee just like I said I would. is not this glorious for every one of us who've ever betrayed Christ. This is a merciful word for us. Not only in the sense that Jesus forgives, but Christ had just atoned for their betrayal. And he didn't forsake them. The bigger part is he calls them brothers. God's eternal plan, we find in Romans eight twenty nine. it says, "...those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." Romans eight sixteen seventeen 17 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the incredible thing about salvation. Not only does Jesus atone for our sins, we could have experienced justification to be made in right, legal standing, and we could have experienced sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, and we could have experienced glorification, and none of that required that we experience adoption. But God, in his incredible plan, says, I don't want you to just be my servants. I want you to be my sons. I don't want you to just be here with me. I want you to be my family. And God adopts us, the rebels. And he makes us heirs. And you know when you bring someone in your family and you adopt them, they become equal heirs with your biological child. And heirs, what is it that heirs tend to get? Everything. Everything. And we are made co-heirs with Christ. Let that wash over you for a moment, friends. We have failed God miserably. But our big brother Jesus has gone to the cross to atone for all of that failure. And we get credit for his perfection. And not only do we get credit and not only do we get our sins taken away, but we get all the blessings of being in the family of God. We get to be co-heirs with Jesus who gets everything, friends. This is a glorious gospel. Jesus is merciful. Truth number four. Truth number five. Jesus is king. One of the most popular passages is the closing passage here in Matthew, and I think it should often be taken in conjunction with the resurrection. Of all the things that Matthew wants to share about post-resurrection, he doesn't share a ton. He just shares one last captive moment that Christ shares with his disciples. And it is a moment that is reverberated and still reverberates through the generations of what we should be doing. He begins by showing us that Jesus is king. He shows us his power. It says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who do you think is in charge, friends? Yeah, this is a trick question. Jesus, all authority is his. The UN is not in control, friends. Gaddafi is not in control. The president is not in control. Your mama is not in control. Jesus has all authority over everything. So here's what that means. Peter says he has been exalted to the right hand of God. Stephen says as he's being stoned to death for his faith, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul says Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews says Christ endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How many of you think the New Testament writers are pretty sure Jesus is at the right hand of God? Well, what does that matter? Well, the right hand of God is this triumphant, all-authority place of position. And so from there, Jesus works out his saving purposes in the world with authority over politics, with authority over government and industry and business and science and education and entertainment and media and weather and stars and light and energy and life and death and your checkbook and your calendar. Jesus has authority over all of these things. And here's the best part. His cause cannot fail. He's the one with all the power. His cause cannot fail If you have all power and all authority and you cannot die, your cause is going to win. His cause is going to win. It's a great reason for following Jesus. He cannot fail. Sin and death and hell and evil and Satan, none of those can defeat the risen Jesus. He will win. I wonder if you've trusted him, friends. I want you to see his power, but then look at his plan. This is what he says in 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's only one command in that passage, and it's make disciples. That's the command. he says, here's how you make disciples. As you are going, you should be doing two other participles, baptizing, teaching. There are three participles. Participles are I-N-G words. So as you are going, be baptizing and teaching. And we've often said that uh, Southern Baptists have tended to emphasize baptizing to the detriment of teaching. He didn't say, have them make decisions. He said, make disciples. Countless folks have walked down aisles and been dunked, but there's no evidence of this power or following the king's plan in their life. And friends, the great king has given his great words. And here's what he says, make disciples. If you can't put on paper today who you are making disciples of, Friends, you are in disobedience to the command of the great king. He's serious about it. You may be lackadaisical and apathetic, but friends, you don't have all authority. And if you don't know that already, you'll find it out soon enough. And he cares that the church follows his word. Either he's in charge or we're in charge, but not both. And since he has all authority, that debunks us. Therefore, we should be following his great plan. And here's his plan. Make disciples make disciples. Wherever you go, you're at work, make disciples. You're at the softball field, make disciples. You're at the tire shop getting new tires, make disciples. You're at Taco Bell on Airline, where I'm there once every six months, you make disciples. Wherever you go, (laughs) Miss Lynn, why are you laughing so hard at that? (laughs) You think I'm there more regular. Make disciples. Here's what I want to remind you as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. There are millions in this world today who've never even heard the name of Jesus. This command has not been fulfilled, and we should care. There are people in our city that are not exalting Christ today. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. After Paul gets to his big conclusion, on, on he does this whole treaty, 57 verses on the resurrection of Christ. And then he gets to the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul does this huge treatise on the resurrection, and then he comes to one simple verse of application. He says, it should make a difference. He says, you should always abound in the work of the Lord. You should be steadfast and immovable. And I put two points there for you. Don't let anything distract us from the work. And don't let anyone detract from its worth. He says, because you don't labor in vain. Everything you do to make disciples, it's worth it. Every effort you make, every prayer you pray, every lesson you teach, every sacrifice, it's worth it. Why? Because he lives. The resurrection changes everything. The reality of the resurrection should affect every day of our lives. So just a couple questions in light of just these two points. He is king, and here's his plan that we make disciples. Is it clear Jesus is our king? Is it clear Jesus is our king, or does it look like we rule our own lives, friend? Which one can your co-workers look at and tell? Which one can your neighbors tell? Which one can your mom and dad tell? Are you king, or is he king? Second of all, is it clear we're following his plan? Or is it clear we're following our plan? If we're following our plan, then we're going to look just like everyone else. If we're following His plan, we're going to be making disciples. And friends, it matters. Let me give you the last truth about Jesus then in this passage. Truth number six is that Jesus is present. Look at how this glorious passage closes just with three little phrases. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Truth number six is that Jesus is present, the King's presence, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I shared with you before, a long time ago, I came to Skip Bertman's baseball camp, and uh, we stayed in Tiger Stadium, and we were in fourth grade, myself and two of my friends from Leesville, and we wanted to call home, and this was back when they had things called payphones, and uh, they, at that point, had increased because they cost a quarter, you know, and we wanted to, to call our parents, but it was a cross on the same side as the PMAC, and so we were kind of scared going out. And so the three of us took our bats with us. And so a very wise and astute counselor stopped us in the hall because he saw three fourth graders with bats walking down the hall at night. And he said, where are you guys going? And we said, call home. And he said, why are you taking your bats? And we said, well, we were a little afraid, you know. It's night. It's dark. And, uh, and so then he did the Allstate commercial with us. He clapped his hand. And he said, you know, as Allstate says, you're in good hands. Only thing was, he'd been a little crazy during the week, so it didn't bring us much comfort, you know, that now we thought the bats may be needed for him, you know, but he went with us, and I, I remember that. I love this picture. The one who has all power has promised he will always be with us. One time, Paul was abandoned by his friends, and here's what he tells Timothy. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Isn't that incredible? How is it that Paul can forgive the people who deserted him? It's because it's what Paul's Savior did as well. The gospel should flow out of us, friends. He says, may it not be charged against them. And then here's what he says in 2 Timothy four sixteen: But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it author of Hebrews has said, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So though all others abandon you, friends, Jesus never will. Jesus never will. We're going to transition to a time that we celebrate. I'm going to ask Stephanie and the crew to to come and we're going to stand in just a moment and sing to this risen Christ. But I want to share a conclusion that another pastor shared at the end of his Easter message. And here's what he said. Easter is a great day for reaffirming our conviction that Jesus Christ is no mere man, no mere angel, no mere creature, but from everlasting to everlasting, he is God through whom and for whom all things exist. Here's our Easter witness to the world. The risen Christ is your king and has absolute unlimited authority over your life. If you do not bow and worship him and trust him and obey him, You commit high treason against Christ the King, who is God over all. Easter is God's open declaration that he lays claim on every person and tribe and tongue and nation. Easter has to do with power and authority. Easter is the claim of the risen Christ on every life that breathes. All authority on earth is mine. Your sex life is his to rule. Your business is his to rule. Your career is his to rule. Your home is his. Your children are his. Your vacation is his. Your body is his. He is God. So if you resist his claim, feel no admiration for his infinite power and authority, and turn finally to seek satisfaction from thrills that allow you to be your own master, then you will be executed for treason in the last day. And it will appear so reasonable and so right that you should be executed for your disloyalty to your maker and Redeemer, that there will be no appeals and no objections. Your life of indifference to the risen Christ and of half-hearted attention now, and then, perhaps on Easter, to a few of his commandments, will appear on that day as supremely blameworthy and infinitely foolish, and you will remember this sermon and weep that you did not change. So let me add to that. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Has this change been wrought? And you, does the resurrection of Christ produce as much joy in us as it did in his original disciples? Does the resurrection of Christ make a difference in each day of our lives? Do we passionately worship Christ, our risen King? Paul wrote, and he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that these closing verses we've read from Corinthians is that the victory is one that you give us. It's not one that we earn or obtain. It is given to us by Christ, our glorious big brother, who the grave could not hold. Father, we are grateful for your incredible power and forgive us when we seem so uh, ignorant to your power. Father, I pray that in this room, the reality of Christ's resurrection would grip hearts. I pray that we would have an urgency to our great king's command, make disciples. I pray that his agenda would be our agenda. I pray for those that are in this room who've never fled to Christ, they've never yielded their life to Christ. May they see that Christ is their only hope. Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. And either He will pay the price or we will pay the price ourselves. Would you help those who are outside of Christ this morning to flee to Christ? Father, would you help those that are cold and apathetic have their hearts gripped by the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is King. And Jesus is with us. Father, may the joy of the resurrection grip our hearts. We serve no dead man. We serve an exalted and risen king who's king of kings and lord of lords. So in these next few moments with our tongues, we want to declare that now. We want to praise this risen king. And we want to do so from hearts that overflow from the reality of it. Not cold religion. This isn't religion. This isn't because it's Easter Sunday. The death and resurrection of Christ means something to us every day. So may you be pleased as you empower our singing and may it glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand with me?